two projects, 10 projects, 30 projects, 70 projects, 100 projects. That's a business. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Projects all on track? I'm doing well. Getting off to a busy start to the year. Feels like this year is going to be particularly active with lots going on, so I'm really looking forward to it. Got a lot of things planned for the year, and I can't wait for them to start happening. What about you? What have you got planned for the year ahead? Lots of big ideas and big plans. I hope you get into it and start delivering and achieving everything you want this year. Got another great episode coming up for you today. We have our follow-up conversation with Rod Faring. So I had a chat with Rod two episodes ago and I enjoyed our conversation so much that I asked him for a follow-up chat, which he kindly agreed to. And that's what we're going to hear today. So we go even deeper into his career and the lessons that he learned Before we get to that, here's a quick update on my projects. So my site that's under construction, things are just getting back underway after the summer break. There's a lot going on. We're well into the framing stage now. We're even doing some of the upper levels on some of the townhouses, which is great. Got some of the glazing that's gone in and I'm looking forward to that one coming to completion this year. We've also made a couple more sales in the last few weeks, which is nice. That takes us to about 75% sold, which is pretty good considering we're only about halfway through or just over halfway through the build. So I'm pretty happy with how that's going and I hope that continues. On my other project, I've been going through the tender assessment from the builders that have submitted quotes for my next project. And I've just uh, been in discussions with them around value management options, way that we can save money. And I'll uh, pretty shortly be making a decision about which builder to appoint and starting the next phase of discussions with them and also launching a sales and marketing campaign to get a couple of those units sold so that we can get our construction funding sorted out. So lots going on on that front as well. So pretty busy start to the year for me. I'm pretty excited about it all. I'm also excited about the work that I've been doing on my new training program, which is coming together quite nicely. Don't forget, if you are interested in finding out how ready you might be to become a property developer, head over to propertydevelopertraining.com and take the quick audit or assessment tool that I've uh, posted there for you and find out how ready you might be to get started in property development. We've also got the mentoring program that's available to help you get started. So if you would like to find out more about that, you can email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some further information about that. And if uh, listening to me on the podcast is not enough and you want more from me or more from the show, don't forget you can catch me on all the various socials. We're on uh, LinkedIn, Insta and Facebook mainly. Uh, under the handle of Property Developer Podcast. So if you want to see how my projects are progressing, I do post regular video updates from the site uh, along with other news and tidbits and things that I think you might be interested in. So be sure to check those out. 
And one final request from me, if you are enjoying the show and you can find the time to leave a review uh, on iTunes or any other review sites, I would be most grateful to you. All right, on to today's show with part two of my discussion with Rod Ferring. As I mentioned, if you didn't catch the first part of the discussion, which was episode 76, go back and have a listen to that because we cover a lot of Rod's career and how he went from a humble public servant to the head of one of Australia's largest public property development companies, Fraser's Property, before he retired in 2020. That was a fantastic conversation that I enjoyed so much and we didn't actually get through a lot of the questions that I really wanted to uh, ask Rod. So I asked if he'd have another chat with me and he kindly agreed to that, which is what we're going to have today. So in the follow-up conversation, we cover the memorable projects that Rod considers as he looks back over his career more of the lessons learned from those projects and more broadly from his career. We talk about social housing and the future of Australia's residential housing markets. So another great deep conversation coming up that I'm sure you'll learn learn a lot from. So stick around as we talk to Rod Ferring. And I wasn't sure how to kick off my conversation with Rod given I haven't had a follow-up chat with anybody before. So I thought I would start off by asking Rod what food he wouldn't eat until he was sick. Tuna Mornay. (laughs) My mum used to make the most appalling tuna (laughs) Mornay. She was a brilliant cook, but when it came to seafood, she had no idea. She was brought up in the bush, so she, you know, um, you'd get, get, uh, we lived on, you know, fish and chips for us was frozen fish. If you had fresh fish, you wondered why it fell apart. And, uh, so, uh, so she wasn't good on uh, on anything seafood, but she was brilliant on uh, on, uh, oh, you know, typical um, country women's association um, cookbook uh, author as and contributor as well as uh, as uh, a recipient and practitioner. She was um, she was brilliant at anything uh, sweet, uh, cakes, slices, anything like that. She was uh, she could. She was a brilliant cook of, uh, of red meat and uh, any any form of meat. She was fantastic, and um, uh, you know, she did some really exotic dishes like curried chicken. I mean, that was really exotic for us. We thought that was, uh, you know, Oriental. Big <laughs> 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 uh, effort, but um, you know, my brother had uh, uh, always first every birthday we'd get um, we'd get to select uh, what we wanted to eat and uh, my brother would always have curried chicken and rice and uh, it's fantastic I have to say I really enjoyed it but um, with raisins no no definitely not no no that was uh, that was getting too exotic uh, the idea of, of doing anything other than um, buy the recipe when you are actually out of your comfort zone she was very creative when it came to meat um, of any type but uh, uh, but when you're doing sort of, you know, um, uh, dishes with a lot of condiments, uh, <laughs> she stuck to the recipe. Anyway, so we're diverting already. Yeah, I can remember my mum making curries when I was a kid and they always had raisins in them. And back then you're like, oh, pick the raisins. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think you tried that a few times and we just sort of went, no, this is no good, just get the thing. <laughs> um, what was your mum's, one of her uh, good desserts or... Uh, Sweets that she would bake. Oh, you name it. Um, 
uh, syrup dumplings. Uh, she um, made her own ice cream. Um, what else was there? Uh, trifle. She was pretty good trifle, as long as the uh, the cream and custard was sort of literally overflowing everything. Uh, so not not low fat wasn't something that was uh, understood uh, <laughs> in, uh, in in farmers too, and particularly with the dairy uh, dairy farm component. Um, uh, there was plenty of milk and butter. Yeah, yeah. Everything tastes good when you got butter, cream, <laughs> sugar. Yeah, yeah. Trouble is, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> move on. My dad died at fifty-two of a heart attack, so um, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> but probably enjoyed his food along the way. He did, he did. Yeah. All right. Well, I thought we might pick up our conversation almost where we left off last time, which was an area I was quite keen to explore, but we just ran out of time. When I asked you to choose your favourite project, you said you couldn't really pick a favourite, that you were more pleased or you looked upon and reflected about a body of work that you uh, had contributed to or been involved with. I was keen to get your thoughts on that body of work, which projects stand out for you, and what is it about them that make them stand out? Um, okay. <clears throat> why, why I referred to a body of work was um, because I, I've moved. I mean, it's not as though I stayed with one. It started with an organisation when I was 20 and then stayed there until I was, you know, 60-something. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I moved every roughly every five years. And... To be honest, if I reflect on that 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 decision to move uh, on a, um, it, it was it wasn't it wasn't by design, but I I had a, a sort of a, a sense that in any role you take on, you've really got to make a. Uh, I, I'm sort of an off and on person. I'm not really halfway, uh, and so if you're into it and you get into it, um, that has a uh, that has a a sort of uh, a use-by date, and I became conscious of um, the fact that uh, you really have an obligation to be as good as you can be and help and make other people uh, be as good as they can be uh, in a space of time, and that can't be perpetuated forever. And so the the idea of of of, of you know sorting businesses sorting projects, getting them up and operating, getting them functioning, getting them uh, getting them positioned well, uh, getting the dynamics of the project right, you know, from a cost and a revenue and a uh, marketing and from a sales and from the people, uh, from your consultant team or your in-house team, all that stuff, getting all that aligned so that you've got a clear objective as to what success looks like and then making it happen. And then you, you do that for a period of time and it's really, really rewarding. And then there comes a time when um, the choice is to stay and, and keep maintaining or uh, move and do it again. You can do that with projects um, uh, within, a, uh, within that sort of five-year lifespan, generally speaking, but progressively larger projects, five years is not long enough. Uh, and a lot of the things that I've sort of ended up doing over that are a feature of, of what I've done over the uh, over a career have, have been large scale, long term, complex projects. And 
Um, what I've found is that if some of them, the longest I think is 24 years, um, I've had intermittent involvement over over that period of time for, for reasons I couldn't have sort of anticipated. Um, but but because the Australian property industry is a relatively small one, and you, you, if you if you do move, you end up getting recycled around, so you find yourself bumping into the same projects if they're long term. Um, so so you can't really then take a view that oh well I'll stay on that project and start to finish and finish it. Uh, well, I couldn't anyway. Some people do and love that, and then look for the business to well, what's the next thing after that? Um, and that sort of led me to relatively quickly into roles where I was managing and responsible for multiple projects and multiple project teams. And then that you migrate into a situation where uh, it's not just multiple projects and multiple projects teams, but it's the business of enabling those multiple projects and project teams. Uh, and so you, you and that that's the progression of the career. So. I, you know, I, I have these discussions with, with with people saying, "Oh, well, you know, look, the project is king." Yes, of course it is, but you've got to you've got to you've got to recognise that um, a project lives uh, in in an ecosystem within a business, and it either gets enriched by that ecosystem or it or it or it doesn't. And when it, when it doesn't, you find that um, the, the the project teams revert on themselves. Um, and regard anything outside as being um, interfering, uh, or all those sorts of things. Uh, you know, uh, not 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 uh, uh, not connected to the real world. You know, what are the other sort of comments that you get? Uh, you know, blah blah blah. And um, you know, from from my point of view, that's okay because that's passion uh, in terms of uh, people buying into the project that they're on. But you've got to also be able to multiply that into multiple projects, you know, two projects, 10 projects, 30 projects, 70 projects, 100 projects. That's a business. And a business that's able to diversify itself that way and be able to create a culture and environment that values the contribution and respects the importance of the individual project, but then creates, if you like, a tension, a constant tension to cause... Um, project teams, people within project teams uh, to constantly be um, uh, challenged by uh, and encouraged to be better, uh, encouraged to think beyond what we've always done to what could be done, to think beyond, oh, this is the market we serve, to well, what other markets are possible, uh, to think beyond, well, the pricing is what it is. Well, no, you can create niches and actually create premiums. Uh, to think um, about you know how how assets are created and then sustained by good asset management, all that stuff. No one's the repository of all information when it comes to that. And then when you look at the span of time over which you know I've been doing this sort of stuff, technology's changed so remarkably. So a lot of things can be automated that you are otherwise employing three people to do. That doesn't mean to say you sack the three people. You just find how those people then can be redeployed so that they can do and manage uh, three times more uh, than what would otherwise be the case and use your technology to actually um, enable that to be possible. You know, so 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 that's that's what I mean when I when I say a body of work because I've sort of migrated through um, through from an individual project, which was the best the best of all possible jobs because, you know, the world's quite finite then and you sort of feel 
feel that you're in control of all of the moving parts. But then, and you, and if you're lucky enough to uh, to uh, to deliver really well on a project, then you find what happens is that oh well, here's another three. Um, but then, as soon as you go beyond one, three, well, they're all different dynamics. And uh, trying to employ the same principles that you applied uh, on project X to project W, Y, and Z, because they're different projects, you can find yourself. Um, uh, in difficulties because the market markets are far more um, discerning and uh, bespoke than generic. Yes, there are generic elements um, to what you do. Oh, we're going to do housing, or we're going to do office, or we're going to do retail. Well, they're just labels. What, what do you mean? <laughs> and there's so much more that sits inside the idea of how retail uh, uh, complements uh, residential, how residential and retail by themselves create a precinct but then can be complemented by office, uh, how those two things or those three things then can be complemented by the services that people bring uh, in an environment where they want to experience something different. So design and place and architecture, all that sort of stuff, rolls into the whole uh, alchemy of creating a uh, a project that really does find a place in the minds of people uh, or your marketplace, if you like. And, you know, that that becomes, if you like, the glue or the uh, uh, the attractor um, that causes people to choose this location over that location uh, and give a value to that location that you're attracting them to, uh, and that's sustainable. The beauty of all of that is you can't copy it. And if you've got, if you've got, if you've got a good understanding of that, then that's what I mean by uh, uh, an ecosystem. It's a, it, it's a, it's a cultural attribute. Uh, it's a, a, a combination of uh, and synthesis of lots and lots of uh, inputs from be they architecture, engineering, project management, uh, design, um, uh, placemaking, commercial principles, leasing. Uh, construction, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things melded into one um, overall culture. And if you get that right, you can't just sort of say, oh, well, we'll we'll go and employ that person and bring them into this company and then we'll have it all because that person then taken out of of an environment that is actually conducive to consistently creating good quality, uh, value for money, um, uh, inspirational projects year on year, project by project, decade by decade, um, that doesn't live with one person. It's like a frog. You take them out of water, they're all right, but they do need to get back in the water eventually, otherwise they, <laughs> they dehydrate and die. Does that, uh, does that, well, that, that's why I talk about a body of work rather than an individual project, just because of the evolution over a period of time. That's okay. I'm not, uh, I appreciate the answer, but I'm going to keep probing for uh, some particular projects. <laughs> I'm sure there's some that uh, that do stand out for you. Let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase it. I uh, love the answer. I, I get exactly what you're saying. I, I'm certain there must be projects where you look back and you go, "Gee, that was that was a fantastic project. Whatever it was, waterfront place, this, that, the other for for this particular reason." There must be yeah. a couple of those that spring to your mind where you go, "That was just a." Crap piece of land. We added significant value. I'll give you a four or five. Um, 
There'll be different types of things, though, because they uh, what you think of a project and how I think of a project may be two different things. Um, the very first, the very first um, project that uh, that really taught me a lot was um, the redevelopment of the South Bank of Melbourne, <clears throat> yeah, between Power Street and, um, uh, or oh, sorry, Queen Street Street and. Uh, um, or Princess Bridge, uh, well, not Princess Bridge. Um, what's the one that goes over over Flinders Street? That's um, from from the Arts Centre to uh, to Flinders Street Station. What's the name of that bridge? Uh, not being a long time Victorian, you're going to catch me out here. I know exactly which bridge you mean. Yeah, um, I'll just what's the name of the bridge? Mm. Anyway, that. While you find that <laughs> that section, because what it was uh, back in the early eighties uh, was the Allen's Sweets Factory, um, three old warehouses, one which was the um, government printing works, uh, and a um, bunch of trees and a sort of a, a road that uh, connected under that bridge to um, uh, to, tre- uh, to to the gardens and. Uh, um, you know, people would occasionally run along there, but it was mostly just um, trees falling in, tumbling into the uh, into the Yarra. Um, exotic species, you know, basically just weeds that um, that, that grew there. Um, and this is the uh, the waterfront image from the CBD of Melbourne, uh, looking towards the water of Port Phillip Bay. If you're in a high rise, and that was the glorious Yarra River um, aspect to the CBD. Uh, not quite, not quite the sort of uh, uh, image for a progressive city, and this was sort of a time when all cities around the world were um, were initiating um, uh, waterfront redevelopment schemes. Now, Melbourne only has, well, it sort of has a waterfront, but most of that's taken up by its docks. So, really, the Yarra River was it, Brown, all that sort of stuff. So, what 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 happened was that Evan Walker was the minister for planning at the time. I was a project manager. Um, um, responsible for area improvement, that was what it was called. And uh, David Yenkin was the uh, the director. The two of the, David Yenkin and uh, and this was in that period just when John Kane had come to um, uh, to uh, become the premier. Um, can't remember, I think he replaced uh, uh, Dick Hamer. And uh, Melbourne was sort of in the middle of a rust rust. Uh, sorry, it was the the rust bucket. It was. Uh, uh, of of Australia, it was um, 1983. It was uh, recession, you know, really tough recession. That one too, deep. Um, uh, we hadn't deregulated the dollar or floated the dollar. Um, lending conditions were all uh, regulated, etc. Very, very, very different world to what we live in now. So Melbourne was a difficult place to be. So the idea was, well, how are we going to revitalise Melbourne? So the first thing is turn the city back on the water, bring the water into the city, give it an aspect, give it, uh, make it integrated into uh, into um, uh, the city. So the job that we had was to, uh, in that section of town, was to... Um, uh, Allens were relocating their, their manufacturing facilities. Perversely, my very, very, very first job um, was uh, in the city of Maryborough in central Victoria, who um, attracted Allens to the city of Maryborough um, for the, the location of their lifesavers and uh, and uh, 
Jews uh, manufacturing facility. Another one went over to Broadford, which was their um, minties and, and, and other uh, types of hard candies. Anyway, that's a, an aside, but there's a funny thing through my career. These little connections just keep popping up. You say, well, hey, what, what's going on there? Did I know that? Was that that I had everything? No, no, it's just incidental, coincidental. So, so then Allen's relocated. Then we acquired all of the other uh, and relocated the printing works. We relocated, you know, um, what was it, the rubber dub uh, car wash, uh, all sorts of funny old things that were down there. Uh, raised the uh, the uh, replanned the area, uh, reconsolidated all of the properties that were on leasehold land, so consolidated the titles, uh, constructed um, the boulevard that connected Queensbridge to um, St Kilda Road. Uh, that subsequently got uh, reconfigured when uh, the Crown Casino uh, was built. Um, and the creation of Power Street created that linkage with uh, under there. So you then had a, a plate, if you like, of, of vacant land opposite the city, construct the uh, the boulevard uh, along um, or, or South Bank uh, Walk, uh, which was the, you know, the, the the trees, the bridge with the uh, with the arch. That was that was one of mine. You had to float that piece of steel um, from. Uh, from Western Port Bay up the river at, uh, in the night to get it there, um, lay it flat so I could get under bridges and all sorts of things. Anyway, so the, the pedestrian bridge um, disconnected the Sandridge Rail, uh, Rail uh, Bridge and turned that into a pedestrian uh, walkway, uh, which was a huge, huge set of issues because it was growing weeds at the time. Um, then then um, in each of those parcels, then invite proposals from the, uh, from the private sector to buy them. Uh, turn them freehold, and uh, but in response to a scheme, and so that gave rise to Southgate, which Jennings built and lost a lot of money on, but the legacy is still there, and it's been, I think, a third or fourth owner has probably done okay. Um, then uh, like Costain built some pretty ordinary buildings, which have subsequently been pulled down and re, uh, re reconstructed. Uh, that whole area just transformed, and when you look at it now, it's it's one of the you know the vibrant hearts of uh, of Melbourne. That was the idea. I learned an enormous about there about the com uh, about the combination of planning, in combination with strategic um, asset management, in combination with uh, reconstruction of, of property titles, and then engaging with the private sector to do something that uh, was uh, was greater than the sum of the parts, um, you know, and create a legacy. So I'm I'm I, I'm very very I learned an enormous amount, and I'm just proud that I had something to do with it. Um, the second project then, moving on from that, um, would be uh, uh, the redevelopment of the old Williamstown rifle range. Uh, that was 111 hectares of uh, basically grassland with some rifle butts at the end of it, being used continuously for the training of soldiers before they went off to uh, World War I, uh, the Boer War, uh, believe it or not, uh, in the late 1890s. Um, uh, World War II, uh, and surprise, surprise, when you shoot at something for 135 years, um, it's got it's got uh, lead uh, in it. <laughs> uh, and there were six butts uh, that we uh, that were there, you know, with the whole target apparatus and all that sort of stuff. Um, I was I, I became project director for that project uh, after a scheme had been put up, which was going to demolish all of that excavate it, create a marina uh, and all sorts of things which caused a huge public uh, outcry because uh, and, uh, and it just so happened to then be in Joan Kerner's electorate. 
Um, so that got quashed and I was brought in here. I had to do this project, um, which was uh, controversial. Um, uh, everyone wanted nothing to happen there. The residents, least of all, wanted, you know, that dirty word development uh, to occur. Um, so I was given that job and uh, and we um, uh, had to remediate the project, uh, you know, decontaminate it with uh, lead and antimony, pull all the butts down because they were contaminated because that was leaching into the uh, the pristine uh, white mangrove uh, jawbone area uh, on, on the peninsula there. Um, but when people learned that it was actually getting poisoned by the butts, then they sort of thought, oh, okay, well, we need to do something here. And, you know, work your way through those issues, uh, then doing all of this uh, at a time when uh, environmental sensitivity was uh, was rife, uh, then put a housing uh, development together, then um, uh, refurbish the uh, the old heritage buildings on it uh, and do it in a way that, um, that got... Uh, market acceptance and all the way through, surprise, surprise, we're back in the recession again of 1990, uh, the last recession Australia's had until this one. Um, you know, we, we created uh, record uh, record pricing, uh, 100% clearance, um, release by release, um, about 1,000 dwellings, 1,035 dwellings all up and uh, and it was uh, and, and managed all of the environmental issues. There's a, uh, there's a, a, a a brackish lake system there, which complements the uh, the food source for the migratory birds, which are all subject to Ramsar conditions. Blah blah blah. I'm proud of that because of the complexity uh, around it. You had everything: politics, you had local um, uh, um, uh, objection, like thousands of them. Um, we got the final approval. Actually, had three objections, two of which didn't turn up to the uh, AAT hearing, still cost us a million and a half in those days to actually proceed and uh, go through the process. And one said we sold the land um, after having paid for it um, five years ago. Anyway, um, that's an aside. But got through all of that. So I'm proud of that one um, and it sustained its value, et cetera. The next one I'd, I'd refer to, I, I think, uh, would be, it's not really, well, there are two of them. One is the... Um, one is how working with Rob McClellan, now this was in the mid-1990s, um, the, the, there was a car park that sat between St Paul's Cathedral and Peter McCallum Hospital and um, um, uh, the East Melbourne Terrace. And uh, I... Oh, that's my PA. I'll just send her a message. Okay. Um, <laughs> Those notifications aren't turning off very well, are they? <laughs> um, what I what I uh, what I did there uh, with with Rob McClellan was put together a uh, a scheme, a, a planning scheme um, amendment that enabled five things to happen. Firstly, the St Paul's Cathedral had um, uh, a lien uh, over the uh, the vacant space, the air rights. So we had to negotiate a solution uh, for with the uh, with the archdiocese, um, which was fun. With John Ralph, who was the chairman of BHP and uh, and the archbishop, and I, I was the person who was charged with the responsibility for reading. <laughs> then we had to demolish um, uh, the uh, the uh, oh Weary Dunlop. Remember Weary Dunlop, um, uh, the surgeon. Uh, he, a building named after him and where his office was was located on the uh, East Melbourne Terrace. We had to demolish that because it had been vacated. It was one of the very ugly buildings, um, unfortunately. Uh, so we had to demolish that. 
uh, and get the approvals to do that while also getting the approvals to uh, refurbish the, um, uh, the, the, the remaining terraces. Then we had to negotiate a solution for uh, Peter Mack because it, the, this site abutted, would abut um, Peter McCallum Hospital. And we came up with a, a solution for them to, um, uh, to accommodate the um, palliative care care uh, unit uh, within, within a, a part of the redevelopment scheme. And then um, we, uh, we ran a tender process after having resolved all of the air rights um, reciprocal arrangements around uh, the property uh, and then invited proposals, which ultimately ended up in the construction of the Park Hyatt Hotel. Um, and uh, you'll, you won't notice, but the Park Hyatt Hotel is quite happily uh, with the um, with the archdiocese on one side and Peter McKellen's uh, repat, uh, sorry, palliative care facility, which is all part of the development uh, and performs a wonderful function for, for people going through the worst part of their life. Um, and uh, all of the other uh, conservation elements were uh, were conserved as part of the overall delivery. And we did, I was proud of the site preparation work there uh, in enabling uh, that to be done cost neutral to the government um, because otherwise it was just a, a debacle. Actually, Next one. I actually um, worked across the road from that exact site for about five or six years, Rod. Oh, it still right. integrates there quite well into the, into the area. Yeah, it's settled in and it's a nice part of town. I've always was, but um, certainly enhanced rather than detracted. Next one, ironically, again, here's another irony. Um, the uh, working again uh, in government was with um, uh, the consolidation of what is now Freshwater Place. Who developed Freshwater Place? Australand. <laughs> and we sold it two years ago or a year and a half ago, uh, our last interest in that, in that project. Um, what it was was the International Mail Centre. Uh, BMW wanted to uh, had bought the old rubber dub uh, car, uh, car wash site. It was contaminated. Um, they didn't know that when they bought it. They wanted to relocate onto the corner, which is where the BMW dealership is now, uh, ironically now subject to a high-rise um, uh, apartment development, and so they'll be moving that out. Um, so we, uh, and then there was Australia Post's International Mail Centre, and then there was the um, uh, the pub. I can't remember the name of the pub. What we did was that then uh, again, I with with no money involved, uh, put together a a planning instrument that facilitated a a land exchange with uh, with um, uh, with land that the the uh, the government owned on the corner which is what BMW wanted with the land that they had with a cost adjustment there because there was contamination on the site that they were giving up uh, and that was compensated for by a, 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 an adjustment to the height um, uh, uh, restriction that was on it and enabling an access road uh, to, be, uh, could, to be constructed in a reserve that was a government road. Then that enabled uh, Australia Post to consolidate a much larger parcel which uh, was then given, had access on three sides. Uh, and uh, having consolidated that, then we took that to the market with uh, which Australand ultimately ended up acquiring uh, and creating Freshwater Place, which was uh, you know, the office towers and, the, and what have you. And um, in the interim, the pub, uh, we got um, uh, relocated the Skipping Girl Vinegar, oh, sorry, the VUB uh, neon sign uh, which was in Richmond, we relocated it there 
and sold the uh, sold the uh, management rights or the leasing rights for that location for that sign um, for enough to effectively pay for the roads and the uh, and the other uh, infrastructure that was needed to consolidate. So again. Um, then, yes, Australia Post were a beneficiary uh, as, a, as a result of the consolidated entity. What that, the uplift that was created by virtue of the planning instrument was then used to acquire the Bendigo Post Office uh, and another two buildings in regional Victoria, which the government wanted, uh, uh, and they were converted um, into um, tourist information centres because they're beautiful old uh, classic buildings and what have you, uh, and an art gallery. Um, and all of that was done uh, without a simple uh, any cost to the government. So I'm proud of that outcome because um, everyone won. And uh, then we sort of move forward. Um, you, you, so you're, you're regretting now that you uh, you asked me this question. <laughs> no, no, not at all. This is this is where I was hoping that we would get to. Well, what the, what the, but the le- the lesson that you learn through all of that is what you can do by 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 uh, through the planning process to shift value and then create outcomes that might otherwise if you just strictly stuck to property boundaries and title uh, entitlements um then w- would not be possible so so then the the next one uh, after that would be uh, would be carolyn springs um that was a site uh, the 850 hectares uh had been on the market in various ways or shapes for probably seven or eight years, um, 10 years maybe. It was owned by the Gilbertson family for since 1905, um, so it was all pre-GST um, and uh, used as a sort of a, a holding pen for or holding property for um, animals that were brought down for, the, uh, for meat processing. Um, and so <laughs> we... Uh, it was basically a, a 850 hectares with a Corroy Creek running through the middle of it and the rest of it was mostly weeds, saffron thistles and dead flat rocks too. Uh, and I remember one of the comments, uh, so this is when I was with Delphin. Um, my job was to, uh, to work on putting together the feasibility uh, for a project that would run for 22 years uh, for a project that would preserve uh, the... Um, the uh, the GST uh, free um, status of the land, put together a joint venture structure uh, with others, not just me, um, but put together a joint venture structure that worked for all parties and could sustain the amount of capital infrastructure required uh, to get the project running. Um, so that project um, effectively set for Victoria sales records. Um, it took we signed the deal in 1998 after working on it for two years. Um, began, sorry, 19, late 1997. Started the project in January 1998, 44 degrees, excavating in rock. Uh, you got about, you know, half a metre uh, was as much topsoil as you had. Then you hit um, fractured bluestone lava rock. And it was hard. And... Um, so we, uh, we, we, we started excavation in January, uh, first releases in uh, three, two months later in March. People were uh, living a promise. We, um, we effectively set the project for a 14-year, uh, 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 a li- sorry, a 20-year lifespan, starting it in 1998, 
it was finished in 2010. Um, so effectively a 12-year lifespan, half, pretty much half, set sales record year on year doing 600, average with about 680 sales per annum, um, uh, managed to deliver uh, pricing that was uh, on average double um, the original assumptions because of the uh, ability that Delphin had to be able to um, craft uh, urban design and um, product needs and um, uh, hydraulic uh, and project management focus uh, in a way and manage it in a way that was you're able to create value from nothing because that site had no natural attributes other than the Koroi Creek. Uh, and even that was heavily degraded and flowed infrequently, et cetera. Um, so uh, 8,700 and, uh, and something dwellings later, 25,000 square metres of retail floor space, 25,000 square metres of office floor space, five schools um, and uh, uh, supplementary um, uh, learning and education infrastructure uh, plus an enduring uh, sports precinct which Collingwood Football Club bought into, um, so adult-sized ovals, co-location of, of, of facilities so that uh, all of the facilities there were far more um, uh, far more advanced than what any individual school could afford to buy or build themselves. Um, co-shared, co-managed, uh, etc. Um, that that's a, that's a, that's been an example project, I think, for one of all the awards you can win for that type of project, uh, and that's an example um, of how you are able to get the structure right, because essentially this was not a pay up front uh, deal. This was a pay as you go deal. The owner, um, because of the pricing we achieved and the volumes we achieved. Uh, did better than they could possibly have imagined uh, doing uh, relative to the initial hurdles that we set. Uh, the company, obviously, Delphin, did much better uh, than um, uh, than our best forecasts would have suggested because of the focus. And uh, that's where I learned the value of urban design, focus, project management, uh, and um, using every attribute of a site uh, particularly when you're when you're uh, doing something different with it rather than just leaving it fellow uh, to turn it into an advantage and that created an address and an address created uh, a sense of place which created a location which people wanted to be in so that 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 uh, that's that's another one and then then I'd uh, then I'd move to um, probably the uh, the um, Footscray Ammunition Factory in uh, in um, in Melbourne, again, 135 year old uh, facility for the production of bullets for uh, for the defence of the colony of Victoria. Um, uh, interestingly enough, because it was that old, um, lots of buildings uh, that had to be well heritage classified, but lots of them heavily contaminated, some with explosives and all sorts of things. Um, and a floodplain on the Maribyrnong River, which meant uh, which was also contaminated. Um, so a whole piece of work again, environmental management again, uh, converting the uh, uh, getting a planning scheme in place, uh, and um, this is a phone now, so I'm losing a uh, completely. Uh, <laughs> 
What's that? Um, so that that was in a uh, that was in a, um, a, a again. It, it was just one of those projects that was just interesting of itself, uh, given what we did with the remediation work. Um, you know, came there with an expectation the remediation work or the budget uh, that uh, was being adopted for it was in the uh, um, tens of millions. Um, I spent my time looking at ways to do it for less than that. We had actually managed to do it for less than five um, with all the compliance in place. So that's a straight benefit to, um, uh, to the bottom line if you're able to do that. Uh, and that set the project up so the product mix again um, uh, uh, got got going and we got got the sort of momentum that you're looking for. Then going forward again, um, projects that uh, in Lend-Lease, uh, well, uh, the uh, the Footscray site was a Lend-Lease project, so was a, uh, the Maragong site. But oddly enough, another one of those um, uh, ironies, I'd set those up when I was, when I, when I was with with ADI, Australian Defence Industries, um, appointed the joint venture partner only to be on the other side of it as the proponent when I was with Lend-Lease, responsible for the business that was doing the project. So uh, it's funny. Um, then I go I, I go forward, uh, again, really enjoyed my time at Lend-Lease because it broadened you um, uh, across different sectors as well because I was primarily uh, at residential at this stage, and this is back in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, and like, there, there are four or five other examples like Carolyn Springs, but in Brisbane uh, and in uh, in Sydney that, um, that that had similar experiences. So this ability to understand the alchemy of what makes a uh, what's a project sing was something that that has um, has stood me in good stead uh, over an extended period of time. Then moving forward to um, to. I was proud of the experience that I was able to uh, or bring to and the outcome that I was able to achieve uh, with Lendlease Prime Life. That was a mess in the GFC and um, a situation where I think I mentioned this in the last conversation, but the effort that we put in to A, ensure the business did not close down because of the obligations that you had to the people who were dependent on you. Two, the lend leases of willingness, preparedness to do what it took uh, to ensure that that happened. I was very proud of that. Not only is it me, I mean, I was proud of it um, in terms of the company uh, and its contribution. Um, I, uh, I, I was proud of the fact that we we're able to find an ownership solution that enabled all of that to happen. I was proud that we were able to, um, uh, to do that in a way that, took the people, uh, the employees, because there's two and a half thousand of them, uh, with the management because it had sort of floundered, had no direct leadership, had no no you know hands-on focused on what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and where do we want to be. So I was proud that that they they were fully supportive uh, of uh, of of me uh, in the role as MD, um, uh, and proud of the fact that we're able to. Um, and it still continues to be a, a contributor in the Lend-Lease family of companies. So, so, so managed to do the job, but it was exhausting and stressful. Uh, we staved off the banks and their uh, and their uh, their behaviour in the uh, in the GFC, um, and that was a huge learning experience for me in terms of you can't just sort of 
hope that things will get better by doing what you've always done. You've got to realise that the circumstances are what they are and you've got to act. And uh, the, the biggest mistake was to do nothing. You had, and the, there were no bad decisions. There are only absence of decisions. <laughs> so you had to make you had to make decisions and get on with it, and it worked out okay. Um, then moving uh, forward to to phrases, uh, I think probably th two two stand out, two or three stand out. Um, first one would be, uh, I think, um, from a. Uh, the, the repositioning of Australand to to ensure that it stopped doing uh, some of the things that it was just it was it was not competitive in, like domestic housing, getting itself out of that and focusing it on medium density housing, uh, and uh, and that has proven to be a very strong um, strategic shift. Uh, yes, there were casualties uh, in that, but. The, the benefits are far outweigh the, the downsides. The, um, so that's more of a management decision uh, and strategy direction. Uh, allied to that was the, um, the restructure that we needed to do, and that's why I, I joined the company, to help restructure the deals that they were in that were going nowhere because they were pre-GFC deals and GFC had smashed them completely. So we did all of that work. Um, and that positioned the company to trade uh, extremely well over uh, from 2012, 13, 14, while a takeover uh, was, uh, was, uh, was hanging in the air. And I'm very proud of the fact that uh, the team remained completely focused on, on the business at hand rather than worrying about what their futures would look like if a takeover we were bought by Stockland or someone like that. And there was you know, Stockland's were the uh, were the uh, the favoured buyer because they had nineteen point nine percent of us when uh, when uh, when Capital Land sold down um, half of their uh, of their interest. Um, so keeping a, a, a team of people focused. Excuse me. Okay. Well, Karen. Uh, good. Thank you. Can I call you back? I'm sorry. I'm just on a phone call. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, my um, one thing or another. Um, so where was I? Uh, keeping people focused. Keeping people focused during the takeover or the talk of takeover. And uh, and you know I was very proud of that because what what happened was that when the momentum that we build up and then the market turned in our favour because we restructured businesses, uh, sorry projects, got the structures right. Uh, and then the market turned and uh, we're effectively in a position where we got maximum benefit from uh, from the projects that we were in uh, because we de-risked them and uh, and as a consequence from a variety of uh, facets. Uh, and that gave rise to um, uh, to the the sort of trading performance that in, then enabled um, Australand to find the right owner and didn't turn out to be Stockland, it turned out to be um, Fraser's. And what what happened was that the momentum that we'd created um, flowed into Fraser's and Fraser's uh, with Central Park particularly and Putney uh, in Sydney. Um, <clears throat> the combination of those uh, those two projects along with the portfolio of projects that we had in the residential space plus the industrial business plus uh, the commercial assets that we had um, meant that we, we started uh, 
way outperforming anyone's expectations about what was uh, what was what was possible. Uh, and that set up, I and mean, then I was fortunate enough to become CEO of that and benefited from uh, from that ride. So, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud also then of the uh, putting rather than just sort of being um, uh, focused just on the um, uh, the the things that I was known for. I think um, going back to my roots, the uh, uh, putting the emphasis that we did on growing the industrial business uh, and then having uh, been prepared to, you know, just to separate that from the, uh, from the, the remainder of the business and give it, if you like, a um, uh, space uh, to grow uh, so that uh, the market could start to understand the, uh, the scale of the, uh, of the runway that that business had rather than it being sort of a, a captive of uh, little old Australia. Um, with a, with an international owner uh, uh, in place, it, it had scope to grow, and that's exactly what it's done. You know, it's gone from you know what one point eight two billion um, uh, when it was in Australand um, to a six and a half billion now, and uh, five six years later, and uh, with a, you know it'll hit ten uh, over the course of the next uh, four or five years, well four years, um, uh, I would have thought. So that I'm proud of that in terms of value creation. Um, and the other thing, though, in coming in as the CEO replacing Bob, uh, I put I put a high priority, a strategic priority, in getting the culture right um, in the organisation because it was a it was a culture that was um, a, a little bit siloed and uh, collaboration wasn't a strong suit. Despite the fact that everyone said they wanted to work in a collaborative environment, it wasn't their strong suit. And um, what what. Uh, what has transpired is that we've turned the, uh, by a variety of means and managed to turn the uh, the culture into a very collaborative culture, which meant that, um, <clears throat> you know, working flexibly um, in COVID was really something that only sort of disrupted us for a couple of weeks. Um, and if anything, it's it's hard to see how we'll go back to working um, uh, in, a, in a more tra- more traditional ways that, um, that six or seven years ago we were. So I'm very proud of that, and I'm proud of the performance, and I'm proud of the succession then that's been created for, uh, you know, for for the next um, uh, leadership teams uh, for the industrial business and for the uh, the uh, FPA uh, business too, and um, and I, you know, because I think that puts those platforms in good hands and gives them longevity and uh, gives them freedom to be able to benefit from the individuals that are now leading those businesses um, to put their energy into them in a way that, you know, after five or six years, um, doing it across the lot, uh, then bringing it out and, uh, and uh, un- unleashing them uh, uh, with, with, a, with, a, with good culture and good um, owner uh, in place, then I think that that also is probably something that I'm proud of from a strategic perspective so i'll stop there so you pick <laughs> <laughs> i've uh, written down a whole bunch of uh, questions here uh, the first one i want to touch on which i think leads on from what you've just talked about you, you made mention that you w- liked to or you kept moving on every five years and you felt that you're you were more valuable helping people become their best or to to do the best that they could was yep. that a skill or an attribute that you 
intrinsically had or was it something that you worked on over time to identify and find ways of helping people make that happen? I think I think it was it was probably intrinsic, but I didn't understand it until I'd been um, until I started being put in situations where I needed to think beyond what I could control uh, and what I could do in a project only uh, situation. Um, sport teaches you a lot in that regard, particularly team sports. Um, you realise that the individual uh, contribution, um, you know, is is fantastic. And you've got to celebrate it on the one hand, but no team ever um, uh, was successful because of one individual. You know, m- maybe, maybe Michael Jordan is the exception to that, but uh, even even he would admit that uh, Scottie Pippen and people like that were uh, were instrumental in uh, in enabling him to be as good as he could be. Um, so I, I think that's the art of it. Uh, I, I think there are intrinsic um, there was an intrinsic or uh, natural set of attributes that, that, in terms of your personal style and how you how you relate to people, I think that uh, a preparedness to make decisions and difficult ones is necessary in all of that. Um, but on the same token, making sure that you spend the time to uh, to ensure that the decisions you are making are the right ones and for the right reasons. Uh, and that they're communicated well. And I think probably over a period of time, I've got better at putting more emphasis on communicating them well Um, because a good decision poorly communicated is no decision at all. Um, So I think, I think that's, that's one, that's how I, how I think it's evolved, put it that way. All right. And then I had a question also about planning and do you think it's easier going to a planning authority, where, which may be a local council or a state government? Is it easier when you go to them with a big project, with a big vision for a, a very large parcel of land than, say, going through a standard planning process to get a permit for a whatever sized development, 14 units, three units? Do, do you get a... I hesitate to use the word easier run, but are they more collaborative or do you still face the same kind of issues um, that a regular planning application might face? I'd like to say no, but unfortunately, yes, because sadly what happens in planning is um, the lowest common denominator dictates the process. And um, an application is an application. And uh, unfortunately, when you've got, I, I recall a, a, a municipality that will remain nameless was receiving uh, on with a planning department of, of about um, 40 people, they were receiving on average per week, a thousand applications a week. <laughs> uh, and when you think about that and the processes that those individuals in local government are required to uh, follow, um, as determined by state and federal governments and legislative frameworks and what have you, and local politics, et cetera, et cetera, the likelihood that you're going to get any outcomes um, or diff- any different treatment, uh, whether you're applying for a, uh, an extension to your pergola uh, or you're applying for a, uh, you know, 55,000-square-metre um, uh, office tower worth, you know, $400 million. Um, Yes, there are processes to actually take those offline, but all of that means 
in my experience, is that they're uh, they're taken offline uh, to get treated in the same way, just more complicated. The intensity, oh, this is a big project, this would be fantastic. So everyone wants to make their career out of uh, out of what we did on Project X, uh, and the complexity that we deal with now uh, in development applications and development approvals processes compared to what it was 30 years ago is exponentially greater. Uh, and when, when you're dealing with that sort of complexity and technology, unfortunately, hasn't helped a lot um, because it's made more questions possible to be answered. So the more questions you ask, the more, <laughs> uh, the more complexity you engage in um, and the politics uh, remains the same because ultimately development is not something that's desired. Um, generally speaking, if you go in Sydney uh, and Melbourne, uh, mostly, not, not totally, uh, and Brisbane, um, pre-COVID, you know, development's inevitable. The assumptions are politically, it'll happen anyway. So why should we give anyone any attention uh, over and above um, uh, what would otherwise uh, happen uh, by due process? COVID comes along, suddenly there's a recognition that development's really actually a, an economic activity and it contributes to the economy. Oh, let's fast track. Let's do this. Let's do that. Well, <laughs> um, the economic uh, drivers were there before. Uh, it's just that they were masked in the assumption that it'll happen anyway. Uh, when you're confronted with a situation where people's livelihoods across the community, not just you know the benefits of a developer uh, for a developer or a builder, um, when they're in question, then suddenly a, a, a different urgency applies. So, look, I think I, I think. Relative, the, the, the intensity of focus and the time taken um, tends to be, relatively speaking, proportional to the, uh, the quantum of the investment made. So if it's a $100,000 investment, you'll get that amount of attention. If it's a $500 million investment, you'll get that amount of attention. Um, but exponentially, it's well, sorry, in, in proportion, it's still the same. Yes, it'll be interesting to see what changes get made following these big announcements about big infrastructure projects and whether they i'm always curious whether they flow down to the to the smaller operator like the big projects get all the attention and maybe they get a few shortcuts along the way but does it flow down to the smaller operator I don't, we'll see um it's interesting. I think it'll flow through, it'll flow through supply chains, but it, is there just because um, oh, West Chemex gets completed or accelerated or elements of it, does that mean that the next road closure, uh, sorry, or road redevelopment in um, in uh, in the northern northern beaches of uh, of, of of Sydney gets uh, addressed any quicker? No, it doesn't. It all just project by project treated on their merits one by one and the, the same the same um, uh, scepticism about the development dividend or the social benefit uh, that's derived from these investments um, re-emerges because everyone wants wants the activity but they don't want it where they are they don't want it to affect them well I'm glad you touched on that because that was a question I also had for you was this notion of resistance or stasis which you touched on around uh, people not really wanting to change or not wanting change around them how have you dealt with that in your experience 
Yeah, look, I'll, I'll go back to that uh, Williamstown example, and uh, and and it's been a good lesson. You, you you've got to assume that it's going to be there, but you you can't sort of treat it as um, as um, what's the word? Uh, you, you can't treat that um, opposition uh, as uh, a personally or treated as something that is you know people are going beyond their rights, notwithstanding how you know elaborate some people um, choose to try and uh, uh, um, expand on their uh, the nature of their objection and you know conspiracy theories and all sorts of things that get sort of fabricated for the purpose of uh, of, of, of what this might mean. Consultation is the key uh, and um, just being very upfront, transparent, authentic by that I mean, uh, no, no spin. Um, just present what you know, and present it in a way which uh, which is uh, which is uh, uh, open uh, and honest. And um, you you've got to be well prepared in those circumstances, so that when the inevitable, oh, that's rubbish. I know this because I read an article on social media sometime about uh, about a particular species that has been threatened in this location. You say, well. well it doesn't actually, it's not indigenous to this location. It's indigenous to an area 400 kilometres away. Uh, it's gotten here by, by nefarious means, blah, blah, blah. If you're across your stuff, you know your detail, uh, then people, people respect that grudgingly. They will respect it. Won't necessarily change their overt position, but covertly they say, oh, okay, these folks are actually uh, know what they're doing. And uh, that gets, that earns respect over a period of time. And the processes that are in place, that um, the legal processes and the development approval processes, uh, um, enable that to emerge over time. Where it gets difficult is where people just want to, for political reasons, use objection as a launching pad for a political career. And development's a wonderful way to do that because no one listens to any facts in those circumstances. They're they're just interested in uh, in going along for the for the ride of. Um, it's us, not you, and all that sort of stuff. I get frustrated about that. I mean, take the St Mary's project in uh, in Sydney, uh, out near Penrith, split between two municipalities, Penrith and Blackstown, Blacktown, uh, New South Wales government, Commonwealth-owned land. Um, what a recipe for disaster that was. Uh, it launched three, four political careers that I'm aware of um, and took 13 years to get through the planning approval process. Um, sadly, I've been associated with one way or another for all of those 13 years. Um, and that's why I get a little bit jaundiced about uh, about um, how politics and development play themselves out. And unfortunately, what that has is very, very, very nasty byproducts. Uh, and you see that play out with the formation of ICAC and you see that play out with the behaviour of developers uh, and brown paper bagging politicians and politicians Brown pa- uh, expecting brown paper bags from uh, from developers or developers making political contributions and expecting favours. Now I've been we've been sort of now out of that space for twenty years and have never made uh, political donations. And you know certainly the brown paper bag piece you, you that's just a uh, that's just a criminal activity. But you know it's surprising that uh, that because of the the. The, the stakes that are at play, people decide to behave that way is the only way to get through. And, uh, you know, if, if that's how you choose to operate, well, it's certainly not a way to, that uh, that any organisation I've associated with uh, has wanted to operate. 
Well, I think uh, we've moved from brown paper bags to now suitcases. <laughs> That's how big the projects have got to. <laughs> the carry the the carrying uh, units have got much bigger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what about when you find yourself in those challenging situations where you've got competing demands? You, you do have really difficult decisions to make there's not going to be an easy outcome. Sometimes it's might be described as the least worst option or just very tough decisions or difficult situations. How do you manage your emotions or how do you approach those scenarios? Um, well, I think your decision-making process is important because you've got to distinguish what decision, what decision you're making. Um, so sometimes uh, a lot of the difficulty is actually created when you uh, when you think you're answering or making a decision about um, do we or don't we invest uh, in property X uh, in order to overcome uh, the difficulties that it's experiencing finding its market, or um, uh, but in reality um, uh, what's involved is a uh, is is a sales team that's not performing. <laughs> So what decision are you making here? Um, so I think getting an understand, a clear understanding of, of the nature of the issues uh, that, are, uh, that are involved and uh, what the realistic options are um, in order to achieve a, a solution that, um, in order to achieve a solution. So, so I, think, I, I think a decision-making process that spends some time analysing, gathering facts and perspectives so, so that's important. Um, using a forum then for bringing that material um, in uh, in a coherent form to a group of people. I, I use investment committees for that to um, uh, to flesh out and understand what's being said and what's what the issues are, and whether the solutions really do pass muster. Uh, and also to understand the consequences of any uh, any decision that you make as well. Um, in the end, the, 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 the decision rests with uh, the CEO or me or the board, um, but you've got to be confident about the decision you're making and uh, but you can't avoid it. So the simple answer is you've got to make your decisions and get on with it. Um, yeah, there are downsides, but look, there are downsides. So accept them for what they are, know why, you've, uh, why, why that's the best course of action and get on with it. So to a certain extent, I, I took a decision probably 15 or 20 years ago, I used to really get tied up uh, emotionally about that. I took a decision that was just doing me no good um, because the more decisions you have to make, you just can't live that way because what you end up doing is not making any and that's the worst thing you can do. So um, so I, 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 I take a view that you've got to make, the, um, make a call based on the best information available in the circumstance you find yourself in uh, and have an idea about where this decision takes you and whether that, if that, decision takes you somewhere you want to be then do it oh good uh you also touched on working on a 22-year feasibility for caroline springs how do you go how, <laughs> i'm just sort of trying to wrap my head around how you would start on a 22-year visa how do you approach well, that <laughs> you have to build a big spreadsheet yeah, that's right. <laughs> a lot of cells yeah that's right and um Oh look! I mean, it was uh, it was just it, it's just it's a good process. I, I 
I, I enjoyed that process, to be honest. I like a, everyone likes a spreadsheet. If, you, if you're in the uh, property industry, I mean, everyone loves a spreadsheet. Um, but, uh, and it teaches you about the moving parts and the importance of, of, uh, of what we use as, um, uh, as uh, measures and metrics to, uh, to determine what a good investment looks like versus what a bad one is. Um, the process also teaches you they only take you so far. Um, if you think about uh, in rising markets, you, you, there is always an element of um, intuitive knowledge, uh, otherwise called gut feel, um, about what feels right and what assumptions, uh, what, what, what things you assume are achievable. And that's something that you build up over time. You can't just sort of know that intuitively. Some people can, and um, good luck to them. Um, so, so you know, it was it's just iterative. We did uh, that 22 years. I, I remember there were 110 versions of it from the first master version. Then you start start um, doing market analysis to populate what you think the pricing structure looks like. Then you do market analysis to understand what you think the product mix should look like. Then you do um, uh, land analysis in order to be able to actually figure out, well, how much actual developable land have you got versus the uh, uh, versus um, what what uh, and make sure that's right because if you've actually assumed that roads are going to be X wide and they're Y wide, then suddenly that's land that you don't have to sell and you know they can over a project of that scale can can cost you you know hundreds of millions. Um, the uh, you know the cost base that you assume in terms of how many people you're going to take to run the project, uh, what do you pay them, uh, <laughs> how do you reward them, all those sorts of things. Uh, the uh, how much borrowing uh, you you take on, uh, where where do you get it, and uh, how much equity you're going to have to put in, whether that's actually going to drive the sort of returns that a landowner wants. The answer is never. Um, they always want more than whatever you propose. Uh, then they'll want it certain and locked in. It's fixed payments and all that sort of stuff. So you've got to uh, manage all of that. Then you've got to transpose that into a business plan, transpose that into a budget, and then uh, get on with it. <laughs> Raise the capital too, of course, get the borrowing. And then the banks are always nervous about how much stock you've got uh, on, what your, uh, what your major capital commitments are from a CapEx point of view, um, blah, 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 and just so no cash flow. But ultimately, when it's all said and done, you do a big feasibility like that in order to achieve one thing, a single row down the bottom that tells you what's your net cash flow look like. And, uh, and then you spend all of your time managing that number as best you possibly can year on year. Yeah, I find it challenging enough on a kind of three-year project, <laughs> a 22, 23-year one. The other thing about that, though, is it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not fixed. That's right. what, one of the disciplines that I think Delphin um, was brilliant at was, uh, was basically saying, right, it's 20 years, it's four or five-year projects, uh, and you've got to break it down into that. So don't worry about the last 15 to 17 years of it. Focus on the first five. Uh, and what you've got to do is beat the first five. And then you pull that five years out, pull it apart, put it back together again, break that end to year by year. And by doing that, what you found is that your first five years was actually better than you thought it was. Uh, and so then that becomes the base on which you, uh, you lift up the next. And then you find that the exponential that runs out the back of this we got to a situation where, you know, IRRs and all that sort of stuff didn't make any sense because they were infinite. Um, 
So, I mean, if you get infinite return, well, that's obviously a good thing, but frankly, it's not very helpful <laughs> in trying to judge what you should or shouldn't do year on year. You, you, um, it's good that you touched on cash flow because I remember you saying when you took uh, over or you came in to restructure the retirement village or the retirement business, you realised that it had no cash flow and you said if you don't have any cash flow, you don't have a business. Hmm. I wondered whether you had any ideas for maybe smaller developers on what they could do to generate cash flow in their businesses. It depends on what type of business it is. Development businesses are notoriously bad at cash flow um, because they pay too much up front. I mean, they've got to they've got to borrow and then they've got to generate. Uh, they've got to borrow and borrow until they actually start to generate um, uh, uh, income. On, on Project X, if you like. In those circumstances, uh, sounds really trite, but uh, but from a project management point of view, just focus, focus, focus on getting to the point of revenue uh, and know how long it takes because unless you can be confident about when revenue is going to be generated, all of the other decisions that you're making today about debt and uh, and uh, the, your investment in cost base and number of people and all those sorts of things, are um, uh, completely uh, dependent on when revenue is achieved because all of your return on cost, return on uh, yield on cost, uh, IRR, et cetera, are all dependent on when you start to get revenue because if you can bring revenue forward because you're good at project managing and managing your cost base, how you procure, all those sorts of things, you're bringing that, uh, that space forward. But that's that's for a a one-project company, uh, for the want of a better term, where the principals are doing all of the work and uh, and they uh, they'll take their pay out of um, out of uh, they'll take their living expenses today, but they'll take their um, out of a project management fee, but they'll get the payoff when the project actually uh, hits break even and better. And usually that's in the last ten to fifteen percent of of the project, and so making that certain and sooner. Um, is a good idea <laughs> because that's uh, that's why you're doing it in the first place, presumably. Um, for businesses that are uh, that are able to um, generate cash flow from multiple sources, then not just development, then you know, that that's what I'm more familiar with. Um, I mean, I'll do private projects, but that's that's private stuff. Um, where 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 then it becomes all of the questions around diversification. What's the mix of uh, how do you make money? You've got asset management fee streams, you've got development management fee streams, project management fee streams, you've got property management fee streams, facilities management fee streams, rent coming in uh, that needs to uh, exceed your cost base. Then you've got development as well. Then you've got um, uh, ways to actually own and hold assets that don't um, cripple uh, your balance sheet. Um, that's what Rust, uh, REITs are about. Um, so that gives you the ability to be able to then invite in other capital so you can release more of your own capital to be able to actually do other things and recycle capital on an ongoing basis. That's equity usually uh, without having to go to banks all of the time. So so the, the all of the ingredients associated with putting together a diversified business need to take three things into control. Uh, into how do you get quality of earnings up, which is usually your alpha earnings, how do you sustain beta earnings, which are your recurring earnings, uh, and then how do you do that um, uh, using a capital structure that delivers uh, um, cap- that that is uh, that is uh, 
able to uh, generate a cash flow that is um, bankable. You don't have to, that, by bankable, I don't mean banking with a bank, but banks are always a good test on whether it's bankable. And if it's bankable for a bank, well, it should be bankable for you, provided you've got the wherewithal to be able to sustain. So have you always had a propensity for numbers or was it something that you have refined or built upon over the decades? Um, it's probably learned fine, be fine, yeah, over a period of time. I, yeah, I, I was always good at statistics um, uh, and the maths around statistics and, you know, cash flow analysis and, uh, and, and business analysis tends to be fairly, fairly allied to that. Was you ask me to do calculus or something like that, I said, "No, not really, not really a strong suit." <laughs> um, so I, I, I was better in the more uh, um, uh, pure uh, uh, types of maths, or well, applied maths, I should say, uh, than the pure maths. You just mentioned private projects. Does that have have you done any personal stuff on the side, or has it always been the the company stuff? Oh, yeah, bits and pieces, but nothing to run. Well, only for personal interest as well, about 10 houses or something like that over, over time, about 10 properties. and uh, But they've been quite bespoke, you know, built a house for their mum and <laughs> um, that sort of stuff. But uh, um, I've really not had a lot of time to do that sort of thing, to be honest, um, because you, it's probably that analogy about... Um, uh, about landscape gardeners, you go to a landscape gardener's place and it's usually a hovel now because <laughs> the landscape is because they, they do it for a living. They don't want to do it as well <laughs> when they're home. Or carpenters, you know, everything's broken down because they're fixing everyone else's problems, not their own. <laughs> yeah, I was, gonna, I was just curious about whether you like the sort of smaller, have, dabbling in a smaller project when you're working on big, massive projects, kind of like maybe jumbo jet pilots that, Build their own gliders or something like that, just because they like to. Oh yeah, no. no, I've not done that. But as I say, I haven't had a lot of time. Um, I don't feel as though I've had a lot of time. Plus, I I, I live a balanced life. I, I I do put a lot of store on just managing your energy, and uh, you know you've got to do that because you can't sustain uh, a, a focused mindset unless you're, unless you're healthy and, um, well exercised and well rested. And, uh, you also can't, can't do all of that if you're, um, if you've got a lot of stress and family uh, difficulties at home. So, you know, I'm blessed by having a, uh, uh, you know, a partner, Karen and I have been together for 40, come 40 years married next year, um, in May and another five or six years on top of that. So, you know, we've been together for a long time and, um, you know, that, that that aspect of your life when it's so stable and uh, it's um, it's it's a significant ingredient uh, in ha- how you're able to do what you do. Yeah, we touched on that last time. You mentioned that you had a lot of energy. I asked you if that was something that you'd worked on. You touched on exercising. You've just mentioned diet. Now, I mean, it's something you obviously put some focus into. Is that is that all it is? Just diet and uh, a bit of exercise. Is there anything else? Oh, no, I think keeping your mind fresh too in terms of reading, um, just making sure the breadth of what you read um, and uh, and also just recognising that I've always been a person, I've, I've always I've always worked flexibly one way or another. I might actually be in, have been and spent a lot of time in an office, but I've always worked flexibly. If if I'm, my mind is, is one when it's on, it, 
I, I, I just sometimes think, oh, this is fantastic because everything flows. And other times, I mean, everyone's like this, but yeah, you know, anything I do today is just a mess. I just, everything's wrong. And so in those circumstances, I just go home and uh, and just do something else because whatever I did that day would be, a, I'd have to do it again tomorrow anyway. Uh, and anyone who relied on what I did that day would inevitably have been led up the garden path. So I just try and avoid doing that when I'm when I'm in that uh, frame of mind. Well, your marriage—you probably earned that, learned that earlier on uh, during your marriage, Rod. Always, uh, whatever you do, it's going to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, no. I, I, I've learned um, the, the two words that uh, that um, make for a happy marriage. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. (laughs) I've learned uh, to my um, significant cost that uh, if I don't say you're right often enough, I'm in I'm I'm in trouble because apparently I say I'm right too often, and uh, you know that that never will as well. So I asked you last time what you would do if you had a spare hour to do something that you really love doing. You mentioned going for a bike ride. What's the worst thing I could get you to spend an hour doing? Uh, just a sec. Okay. Hi. Yeah. It's my daughter. Sorry. Um, worst thing. The worst thing I could spend an hour doing. Yeah, milking cows. <laughs> From back in your early days? Not something I'd like to do a lot of. Um, oh, no, that's not true. I, I don't mind doing that. Um, I don't get much chance anymore. But, um, yeah, no, I, you know, not something I think about. If I don't, if I don't want to do it, I don't do it usually. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not very handy. I don't like doing handy stuff because I, you know, what's something that should be simple, I just stuff up, and uh, I, I find that frustrating. So, yeah, I'm. I'm not a handy person. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, I wanted to touch on um, getting close to the end of our time. It's gone quickly as usual. You mentioned last time that you were involved with working on affordable housing. Mm-hmm. What's your interest in affordable housing? What does it mean to you? How can developers or how can people solve the problem? Can it be solved? Well, I think it can. I, I look. The reason is um, I've always had a uh, had a my attitude towards housing is it's a it's a it's a, a fundamental need and necessity. Safe, secure housing is a building block around which you know lives get built. Um, <clears throat> when it's not available, when it's not part of uh, of of your life experience, uh, the damage that that can do uh, in terms of fragmented families, in terms of um, impermanence, uh, in terms of uh, undermining educational um, uh, experience, uh, undermining uh, your uh, individual sense of self-confidence, the uh, undermining um, the the fundamentals of maintaining relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that gets uh, gets impacted on, influenced by uh, the the security and quality of the housing environment that you uh, that you 
you find yourself in. <clears throat> and so um, given that it's a necessity, I think uh, when you look at the Australian um, uh, circumstance where, you know, for 70 years longer, in fact, uh, home ownership has been the, uh, the prime objective of all policy frameworks that, um, that Australia has, uh, uh, has uh, promulgated for um, well, since Federation and before. Uh, that, that is not that is increasingly over over recent times, particularly since um, interest rates were deregulated and in the environment we've got now where interest rates are falling, when I've looked at all of the metrics that uh, that influence the affordability of housing, it's interest rates that is the one that's that's correlated. Lots of other things influence employment, yeah, and demographics, um, immigration, all those sorts of things. But if interest rates are low, really low, um, then that drives housing uh, demand. What it does also, unfortunately, is it capitalises a lot of the differential between uh, what. Um, uh, what the interest rates are and what an individual's sense of what, what capital's worth to them. So they borrow more and that gets capitalised into the value of property uh, and as a consequence, housing prices go up. Um, and so, so in those circumstances, when house, house prices, as we experienced over the post-GFC period, rise at a rate that exceeds the capacity of individuals to save a deposit, whether it be five, ten, or whatever a bank requires, then in those circumstances, what are the choices available? And um, in circumstances where individuals who who are who have jobs and who are working and uh, uh, are able to save, what if you don't? What if you have an accident? What if you have a stroke? What if you have all sorts of things that happen to people out of their control? Um, that, that cause them to be uh, either um, marginalised in the employment um, market, marginalised in terms of participation uh, in, uh, in mainstream um, uh, economic activity. In those circumstances, how as a community do we deal with those people and uh, uh, who are affected that way? And in my mind, that's, that's part of uh, the social obligation that people who create housing should also be mindful of, uh, that they also have an obligation to ensure that, that the housing we create is responsive to needs. And these are needs uh, that exist, whether you be a disability, a mental disability and what have you. Yes, governments play a role there and have to play a role because mainstream markets are not going to deal with, um, uh, meet those needs in a, in a conventional way. So the interest that I have is in finding, exploring ways that um, public and private um, relationships can find solutions to meet those needs that would otherwise not be met. And if they're not met, then what that translates to is, you know, women with children living in cars, uh, homelessness, um, drug, all that stuff that, that runs from disadvantage. Uh, all that stuff is uh, is avoidable or should be avoidable in a wealthy, developed economy. And I think it is an obligation on, on people who um, participate in the industry uh, to, um, to look at ways to help um, find solutions for um, meeting needs. And it's not just a need because they're all quite different. And so different solutions for different purposes in different locations 
that to me is is another whole raft of of um, of, of of interesting and important um, work that needs to be done to find ways to respond to circumstances and needs that um, that the mainstream is not dealing with, and governments have got a clear role in that, but clearly the uh, the private sector does too, and um, that's why. Well, ironically, in the last day or so, the Victorian government's announced a big investment program into social housing, which will be interesting to see how that rolls out. Yep, I think that's fantastic. I think it's good, um, but it can't be that can't be it uh, for the next twenty years. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Victoria's grown when you look at the uh, the proportion of of social or public housing that's being provided to um, uh, to meet the needs of people who fall out of um, a, a housing market that is growing is um, is it's necessary that it grows. So the job now, I think, is even more important to be able to say, all right, well, if that's possible now, that's good for the short term, But what we and it's a great legacy, but you've got to build off that to make it sustain over a period of time. So I think we're building about, what, less than 2% uh, of of new housing starts are public housing starts, less than 2%. Um, and that's been static and declining um, for the last 20 years. So, you know, I think, well, I think there is a, uh, that's a, that means that there are all sorts of people who are simply falling out of the whole system. And we're seeing the rise of homelessness. We're seeing the rise of, um, uh, of uh, housing stress, and we're seeing, you know, unfortunate consequences that flow from that uh, in the form of mental health and, uh, and at its worst, suicide. One final question, and it's a very broad one, I understand, but what's your view on the future of the, I'll say the Australian housing market? You can break it down or give us give me your view on that, but the, over the sort of medium to longer term, what do you, where do you think we're headed housing-wise across the country? Uh, I, I, I think um, I, I think post-COVID, there's a bump or two ahead for the next two years, but interest rates are so low now that um, that I think that could well um, pave the way through. I think I think it re- the answer to the question really rests more around uh, the performance of the economy and uh, how borders open up, interstate and internationally, uh, and whether Australia uh, reconnects with the world, as it must, uh, given that we're a, uh, a small trading nation uh, with an open economy, or it doesn't um, to the degree necessary. And I think that's why risks around to the housing market are as much about risks uh, about us narrowing our view uh, about the world we live in rather than, in, you know, keeping it broad. Very good. So I'm optimistic about uh, the housing market long-term, um, medium-term still uh, optimistic, short-term, I think we've got some bumps here. Yeah, I tend to think we're a growth country and governments have taken on a lot of debt over the last couple of months, couple of years actually, and the fastest way to pay that off is to bring in or grow the tax base and the quickest way to do that is bring in taxpayers so i think they're going to be looking to bring in more people and they're going to need somewhere to live and we've got an aging workforce and uh, the whole immigration debate is not about oh well you know should we or shouldn't we 
the average age of our employees are, is 37 years old. And as a consequence of COVID, it will go to 38 um, and possibly 39. Uh, it has to be kept below 35. So where does that come from? Either extend the working age and so postpone uh, uh, retirement and what have you for another five years. I'm at the back end of the baby boomers, so I keep chasing that uh, uh, that line. I think there'll be some of that, unfortunately. Um, but also you've got to grow the base. And, um, you know, that's uh, that, that's a good idea, but um, birth rates per... Uh, um, uh, per female are uh, at um, world lows um, in the scheme of things and not likely to uh, change. Uh, and as a consequence, then what's the solution? There's only one other solution. Or you can take the Dick Smith view and just implode and everything will be fine. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be able to pay for welfare and everything else off the back of something. I'm not sure what. I think it's always easier for people who have wealth or means to... Uh, proselytize those kind of uh, outcomes. Mm, mm. It's a bit different when you need jobs and need income. Yep, funny thing that. <laughs> okay. All right, Rod, it's been so awesome talking with you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and expand on some of those topics. I really appreciate your time and I wish you well for... Well, we've established that it's not retirement. So in your yeah. post, post CEO days, whatever they bring. Very good. Okay. Thanks very much, Justin. See you okay. later, Rob. Thanks again. Bye. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.